I just uh, I want to go ahead and start with a, a fair warning. Uh, I know it's warmer, and when it's warmer, you get a little sleepier. Uh, so we have some cameramen that will zoom in on you if you're sleeping, <laughs> and it will go live, uh, and the whole nation will see you sleeping in church. And I have certain pastoral staff close by that are going to wake you up on camera to see how you respond. So. I've just given you fair warning. If it happens, just know I told you it was going to happen from the beginning. So don't sleep ever again. No, I'm just kidding. That's uh, it's terrible. <laughs> Guys, I, I'm, I'm actually hoping to keep you awake, not, not by threatening you, but uh, by enticing you to understand something and listen to something that you actually want to hear. Uh, I, I, think, I think I have something for you that you, you desperately long for. So here's my question. This is participation. Like, even if you're watching online, do me a favor, participate. If you want more of the blessings of God, raise your hand. Okay, that's, that's the majority of you. There's a couple of you psychopaths that don't want the blessings of God, but the majority of you want the blessings of God. I, I have a follow-up question. How many of you fear you, you might not be receiving all the blessings that God has for you? Anybody? Okay, some of you are going, I don't know, theologically, am I supposed to raise my hand? Where's the sovereignty of God in that? You know, no, no, don't, don't, don't get yourself all confused. Yes, we, we long for more of the blessings of God. We have a realization because we're not perfect and we miss things, we're missing some of the blessings of God. So the whole message today is to teach you how to experience all the fullness of the blessings that God has for you. It's really not a complicated thing. So I'm going to have you write down a couple of, of quick thoughts at the very beginning, or if you, like, whatever reason, can't write, take a note on your phone, you can take a picture of it. Two very simple thoughts, they're sequential, that are going to get you to the blessings of God. They're like dominoes that have to fall. So if you want the blessings of God, here's, here's what you need to know. All the blessings of God are found in obedience. Very simple idea. All the blessings of God are found in obeying God. When you obey God, you experience the fullness of the blessings he has for you. He didn't call you to do anything that he doesn't want to show you his power and blessing through. All the blessings of God are found in obedience. That's the domino right before the blessings of God, but there's a domino that has to fall before that particular domino, and here's what it is. The longer you delay obedience, the harder it gets to obey. Right right there. The longer you delay obedience, the harder and harder and harder it will get to obey. I don't know if you've ever had this happen before, but maybe you're driving along, especially men, we, we deal with this, and like, we're driving along, we see a car like broken down on the side of the road, and we're wondering, should I, should I stop and help? Most of you women, please don't. I, there's some crazy people out there, but some of you big burly men need to stop and, you know, like, should you go help? You could take them anyway. I, I see Steve over there, he could take them. You know, like, big men could go, so you stop, and you're like, okay, I need to go off the side and see if I can help, and then push their car or whatever. But it's Sunday morning, and you're on your way to church. And you pass by them, and you're going, well, I'm, I'm already running late to my community group. Uh, I'm supposed to go serve, and I'm, I had trouble getting out. So you, you're like, no, I can't stop. But then, and you're driving, and you're still plagued by that idea, like, oh, man, I'm a Christian. Like, I know there's a whole Bible story about the Good Samaritan and, like, passing by. And so, okay, no, I, I, got, I got to stop. And so you think, okay, the next turn, I'm going to stop and turn around. And you're driving a little bit more, and you're going, man, that's a long way for another turn. Now you're about a mile away, and you're going, okay, now I'm going to be, like, super late. If I turn, and then you miss that turn, you keep going, you're driving, and now you're about two or three miles away, and you're starting to reason, like, if I turn now, they're probably already gone. 
I'm going to waste my time. I'm going to be super late. And then before you know it, it's almost impossible to go back. You've reasoned your way not to obey. And the further and further you got away from that point that God was calling you to obey, the harder and harder it got to obey. This is the way obedience works. The moment he calls you to obey, if you obey immediately, that's going to be the easiest. But the longer you delay that obedience, the further you get away from that point of obedience, the harder and harder it's going to get to obey. Let me tell you why that matters. You are going to miss so many of the blessings of God because you are not obeying and the blessings are found in obedience. There's something that uh, you, you need to know, and many of you have heard it before, especially in business. It's called paralysis by analysis. You ever heard of that before? So paralysis by analysis means you need to make a decision, but you just keep analyzing the situation. You need a little bit more data, a little more information. You need to do one little test group more to see if it's a good decision to start that product or to launch that business or whatever. Uh, uh, paralysis by analysis. So you experience it in all different kinds of ways. I have this disease. Uh, I've, I've experienced it in the purchase of a vehicle. So, you know, my, if you don't know our story, our eldest daughter, she went off to college and she took a car with her, which means we're one car short in our home. So we've been needing to purchase a car. We've been looking for months to buy a car. But let me tell you how it always happens. Like we're looking online, checking, making phone calls, and, you know, Facebook marketplace and looking at uh, dealerships and all that kind of stuff, looking for cars. And inevitably, you know, we want the trifecta, like the perfect thing. Cheap car, low mileage, great, you know, fuel economy and all that, which you can't find anywhere right now if you're looking for a car. It costs like three times the normal amount. So I'm, I'm looking all over. It's so difficult to even find a car that fits in our budget. But inevitably, I'll find one. And then, I'll, okay, now we've got to do a little research on this bad boy. First thing I, I got to do is I got to study the car. Okay, now I heard about that car. It's got transmission issues. So now I got to go back and study, like, how are these transmissions doing? At what mileage does it go bad? How much does it cost to repair that transmission? Okay, now I feel okay about it. Uh, now I gotta, I gotta do a little bit more. Okay, this seller, I gotta check them out a little bit. Okay, what's their track record? Have their sales been good? Okay, I'm about to make the purchase. Well, now, I, now I gotta go to Consumer Reports and kind of see what they say about it. How does it compare to other cars? And now it's been a few weeks and we're done and we go back and the car's gone. It's been sold like three times at this point. You know, it's just <laughs> moved on. You gotta start all over again. And the same thing happens again and again and again. We've been months looking for a car. We haven't found jack squat. And the reason why is because I have paralysis by analysis. Can't pull the trigger until yesterday morning. I'll tell you what happened yesterday morning. I wake up and I do my normal quiet time. I'm in the Word. And I, as a part of that, I go out to our back porch and I sit there and I journal and I pray. And I always ask the Lord, what's, what's the staff knows this, what's, what's your assignment for me today, Holy Spirit? Do you, do you have a, an assignment for me to be aware of today? And so I'm sitting there and I'm praying. I'm asking for my daily assignment. My wife happens to be sitting next to me and uh, she's praying, doing her thing, and so I'm, I'm asking the Lord, I'm listening, and almost immediately, it was not an audible voice, but a very deep sense that the Lord was saying, your assignment today is to buy a car. I got no leads on anything. I've ruined this now like eight times over. I, I have, there's no way to accomplish that. So I start to write, I'm journaling, uh, Lord, I believe that you want me to begin to work toward buying a car, and before I could write it, I felt like the Spirit going, that's not what I said. I didn't say work toward buying a car, I said buy a car. <laughs> so... I don't even know. I wrote like, this is absurd, Lord, but I feel like you're telling me I'm supposed to buy a car today. Then the second absurd thing is to lean over to my wife and say, hey, baby, I want to I tell you what I think the Lord is saying is supposed to happen today. This is happening yesterday, by the way. I lean over to her and I say, I, I don't know why I feel like the Lord's saying that today we're supposed to buy a car. And she's crazy enough to go along with me in these things. We've been at this long enough now in our marriage. She's going, well, I guess we'll see what the Lord's up to. <laughs> 
you know, so we're praying through this thing. She, we finish, she walks off, and she gets on her phone, and she's just real quickly going to check uh, Facebook, just, you know, catching up on things. And a, a friend of hers who's living out of the country had posted right then and there about a car that was for sale that was, you know, good mileage, fuel efficient, fits within our budget. Okay. And then she goes, well, I don't want to buy from a friend. You know, that could get really awkward or whatever. And then she realizes, my husband just told me that the Lord was saying the assignment today is to buy a car. I should probably at least tell him that, that this car is available. So she tells me, I call the, the owner of the car who's living in a different country, had a great conversation with him. Uh, make a long story short, by the end of the day, we've committed to purchase a car. And so we have it happen in one day when for months and months and months I've been searching. You want to know the difference between the two? God told me and I obeyed. That's the only difference. Before, I'm, I'm paralyzed because I'm analyzing, what if this happens, what if this happens? And then God says, do, and I obey, and I experience the blessings of Almighty God in a 24-hour period. Here's, here's my point. There are miracle stories God has for you. He wants to show you his power, and they're all found on the other side of obedience, but you are letting paralysis by analysis keep you from obeying God. I don't even know what it is, but you know what it is. He's calling some of you to open up your family, to bring a child in through adoption. And you go, we just got to make sure our income levels. No, I got to make sure everything's going to work. What about the bed situation? How are we going to, all these different, you're going to keep searching, 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 never take a step forward. God is calling some of you to be radically generous. And you're going, yeah, but I got to make sure I get that promotion at work first. Or I got to crunch all the numbers. See how that's going to, God is calling some of you to go mentor a kid in the school. You're like, I don't know if I could do that. What, what if I'm not a good mentor? What? He's calling you to obedience. You know what it is. Share, share your faith with somebody. I don't know if they're going to reject. Maybe I need to take a class first before I get a little more information. You're paralyzed right now because you think you need more and more information. And God is saying, would you just obey me? All the blessings of God are found in the simple act of obedience. And so many of you are missing it. But there's actually maybe an even greater threat. There are some of you who are here this morning, and God has been wooing you into salvation. And you see that baptistry up here on the stage, and you're going, you know, I've, I've felt the compulsion, like I'm supposed to be one of the ones to go up there and get baptized. But you're just not sure. You still have some questions yet that you haven't gotten answered, and you, you still, you don't know if you're going to make it. Like, what if it's just fake? What, and I don't know how God's going to, what if I'm not going to last? I don't know. You have all these excuses, and you're paralyzed right now because you, you're trying to get all this information. Do you realize that in less than five months, we have seen 200 people baptized in our church. That is a miracle of Almighty God. <laughs> Praise God for it. But here's what I know. I know there are more. God is moving in revival, and there are some of you right now, and you know God has been calling you to take the step of faith, and you've been dragging your feet. You're not obeying. And I want you to know there's a great risk in delaying obedience because the longer and longer you wait, the harder and harder it gets to obey. The further away you get from that point when God said, I want you to obey, it's going to be easier and easier to make excuses of why you shouldn't do it. And there could come a moment when suddenly, almost imperceptibly, your heart gets so calloused and hard toward God's voice that you no longer even hear it. If there was anybody that could have happened to, it was a gentleman named Pharaoh in the story of Exodus. We're going to jump into his story in chapter 9, and we're going to read about what took place with him. But his story is a story of calluses on his heart because he kept disobeying God, would not do what he said. And before we jump in, I know we always have guests. We're going to the book of Exodus chapter by chapter. So far, big picture, you got um, millions of Hebrew slaves in the land of Egypt, and these Israelites 
are gonna be set free by Almighty God, and so God sends Moses to go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go. Pharaoh says, absolutely not. There have now been four plagues, and Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. Today, we're gonna look at plagues five and six, and we're gonna see the real problem. The real problem was Pharaoh. Let's jump in, chapter nine, beginning in verse one. Listen to what it says. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the, the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Okay, so fifth plague, some, some things here that are really important. What you got to understand is God keeps upping the stakes every single one of these plagues. And the death of the livestock of Egypt was a gut punch on two different levels for the Egyptians, economically and spiritually. What you got to know about the land of Egypt is that the, the livestock, the animals, was the economic engine. It was their number one tool of savings and bartering. Like today we have retirement accounts, we've got bank accounts and savings accounts. They didn't have that back then. What they had were animals. And their animals became their bartering system. This is how they would purchase. They would sell an animal, they would barter and exchange an animal. And so to lose all these livestock was like losing all your savings, just gone immediately. You had no recourse. And not just that, the animals were your number one mode of transportation. They carried things around. They were your, your source of milk, food, clothing. Everything you needed was from these animals. So to wipe out so many of these animals, they were destitute. It would have been an economic catastrophe. But probably worse than the economic implications would have been the religious implications. Because for the, the Egyptian people, bulls especially of the livestock were considered divine. So many of the Egyptian gods are depicted with bulls. In fact, I have a picture of, of, uh, of Apis He's one of the Egyptian gods, and here he is. He's just a bull. The sun between the horns was the sign of divinity. And they would pray and bow down to this bull because they saw him as a god that was to be worshipped. Could have been this god because all of these attacks of the plagues were upon them. Or it could have been this next one. This was Menevis. Menevis was a, a human body with a bull head. Again, you see the sun, all these depicted. So you look out and see these livestock dead, and you look at these images, and you realize these were attacks against these gods. But, but probably most likely, the real Egyptian god in mind was Hathor. This is a, here's an image of Hathor we have coming up. She was the goddess of beauty and love. And you see the horns coming up, the bull's horns with the sun between it. Now, let me tell you about Hathor. She was considered the mother of Pharaoh spiritually. In fact, there are images that depict Pharaoh as a baby nursing off of, of Hathor. She was the divine mother, the protector of Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh specifically would offer incense and pray and try to appease Hathor, treat her like a, a mother figure that would watch over him. So you can imagine when Pharaoh wakes up and he looks out and sees all these animals dead, he knows his own divine mother has been attacked. And you would expect him to be broken by this. And there almost seems there's a point when Pharaoh actually does decide, okay, I realize now the power that you have, God, I'll obey you. If you were to go back to verse 7 and read it, it says, and Pharaoh sent. And if you're reading the ESV, it stops very abruptly. It says, and Pharaoh sent, and behold. It doesn't tell you 
who he sent or what he sent. And that word choice is very specific in the original language. The reason why is what I explained last week, for those of you who might have been here. I told you that Yahweh went up to Pharaoh and he said, let the people, let my people go. And if you don't let my people go, I'm going to send swarms of flies against you. But I've told you that the word for send was shalach was actually the same word used all three times. Shalach my people to go worship me. And if you don't shalach my people, I will shalach a plague against you. And here you have chapter seven, and it says, and Pharaoh shalach. He, he finally sins. He's finally doing what Yahweh told him to do. So you think he's finally broken until you read the rest of the sentence in verse seven. It says, and Pharaoh shalach, and he noticed that all the livestock of Israel was still alive. And what you realize is he was not sending the people out to worship God. He was sending some people to go check out to see if the miracle actually happened. Because this was a double miracle. It was a miracle on one side because the plague killed all the animals of the Egyptians, but none of the livestock of the Israelites died. Now that, that might not sound like a miracle until you consider the quantity of livestock that the Israelites had. I'm a nerd. I confess that. I look into these kind of data points. So I'm I'm going, okay, what does that mean? I know there are several million uh, of these uh, Israelite people. There's at least over a million husbands. They have their families. Each one of these families would have had several animals because this was their livelihood. And they lived in the land of Goshen where they were shepherds. That was their job. So they would have had millions and millions of sheep, especially, but also cows, horses, camels, things like that. They would have had tons of them. Now, if you take just the average lifespan, a sheep is somewhere around like 12 years or so, cows about 20, horses can be 30 plus, but the majority of their animals were sheep. So let's just go conservatively. Say they lived about 20 years. Now, they, didn't all, they weren't all born the same day, die the same day. You know, they're just every day, like there are human beings, there are people who die every day. They were animals by natural attrition that would die. So let's just conservatively say they had about 5 million animals. That would have meant every day over 600 animals on average, would die just from natural death. Now, this happened, this plague likely happened over a number of days, which meant there should have been thousands and thousands of the Hebrew animals that died. And yet, Pharaoh sends delegates out to go to the land of Goshen to see, and they realize not a single, and the Hebrew is very specific, not a single animal of the Israelites died. It was a double miracle. Not only did he kill these, if there was an animal that was at the point of death, about to breathe their last breath, it was sustained for days because Yahweh did not let a single animal during that period die of the Israelites. It was a double miracle. And Pharaoh sees it. And then what does it say happens? It says he hardens his heart all over again. You know what that tells us? It tells us that Pharaoh was a consummate skeptic. He was suffering from paralysis by analysis. The reason he sent the delegate out is he's looking for a reason not to believe in God. He's looking for a reason not to believe in God. He he does not want to believe in God. He wants to disprove God. And he's analyzing the situation. Can I show? Because he fully expects to send delegates out to, to the land of Goshen and find out their animals have died too. They come back with this miracle. Not a single one of the animals has died. And it didn't matter a lick to Pharaoh still hardens his heart. Let me tell you why that's important. There is an absolute difference between somebody who is genuinely searching for truth and a hardened skeptic. And there are some of you who are in this room, there are some of you who are watching online, and you think you're searching for truth. 
but really you're just a hardened skeptic. You're not really looking for truth. You're looking to disprove what the Bible says, disprove the things of God. You're just waiting to find a pastor make a mistake or a discrepancy in the Bible so that you can show why these people who say they're believers are just fooling themselves. You're not looking for truth. And you, you think you're just doing good and searching for truth. Really, at the end of the day, you have no intention of following God. One, one of the chief passages of Scripture that is used to try to disprove the accuracy of the Bible is the very plague we just read. It, it's this idea of the livestock dying, because there are people who are skeptics who will go to the Word of God, and they'll say, you see, the, the Bible's not true. There are errors in the Bible. And here's what they'll point to verse 6. In verse 6 of chapter 9, says, and all the livestock of the Egyptians died. And they'll go, okay. It says that in verse 6. Now flip over to verse 19 of the same chapter. And it says, on two plagues later, the plague of hell, go out, you Egyptians, and bring in your livestock from the field and put them in your stables, lest they die from the hellstorm. And the skeptics will go, you see? Mistake in the Bible. One, both of those can't be true. Either all the livestock died in verse 6, and there's none left in verse 19, or that didn't actually happen and there was livestock in verse 19. Those both can't be true. You see, there are errors in the Bible. This is why I don't believe it. And I want you to know, if you're looking for reasons to disbelieve the Bible and you settle for that, you'll find that and you'll hold on to it. But if you actually find somebody who's taken the time to search the scriptures, you'll find out there's a really easy answer for that discrepancy. Because if you were to go back to verse three, it says in verse three that the plague would come against all the livestock in the fields. Now, back then, they had stables, just like they do today. Many scholars believe this plague took place in the wintertime, which would have meant there were a lot of the animals in the stables, and the only animals that died were the ones that were out in the field, not the ones that were in the stable. He was very clear about where the plague was coming, which would also make sense in verse 19, whenever there's a hailstorm coming, and he says, you've already lost a lot of your animals. You only have a few left. You better get them inside the stables, or they're going to die by the hailstorm. There's not a discrepancy in God's word, but if you're looking for a reason not to believe... You'll find it. And, and I, I, I want to I caution you. I don't want to caution you to, to keep from asking questions. I think searching for truth is absolutely what you must do. I think one of the worst things you can do is say, I don't want to ask any hard questions because my faith might not be able to handle it. But if the only reason you believe in Jesus is because your mama believed in Jesus or your grandmother believed in Jesus, that's very shaky ground. I believe you need to search for truth because when you genuinely search for truth, you'll find Jesus at the end of that journey. But I also want to make sure that when you're searching for truth, you're genuinely open to truth. That you don't read the word of God to find all the errors to disprove why you should believe. But you search for it to say, teach me truth, God. I'm open. I'm ready. And those are very different postures. And let me tell you why that posture matters so much. There is such a grave danger in being a hardened skeptic. Because there can come a moment when you reject God for so long, he will accept your rejection of him. If you don't believe me, I'm going to move on to the last portion we're going to read today, the sixth plague, because I want you to see there's a change in terminology in this next plague that can scare the heebie-jeebies out of every single one of us as we look at what it says. I'm reading on, verse 8. It says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh, and it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. 
But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Because you have the sixth plague, these boils that come upon people. And this is the first plague that actually affects the physical body of the Egyptians. The other plagues were against the water, maybe against the dust of the ground, against the animals. This is the first plague that now affects the body, and it affects everybody, all the Egyptians, including Pharaoh himself. Now, there's very little doubt about which god or goddess this particular plague was attacking among the Egyptian deity because there was a goddess named Sekhmet. In fact, I have a picture of Sekhmet, and you're going to see what she looked like. Let's bring that picture up if we can. So she was the warrior goddess. That's why she has the face of a lion. And she was believed to be the one. You see the sun again in the head. That's the sign of divinity. But you notice the bowl in her hand. The reason she had the bowl in her hand is because she was not just the goddess of war. She was the goddess of healing. And that, that bowl was the elixir of healing that she would pour upon people. And what would happen is the priests would offer her food and drink and burn incense to her in the hopes that she would pour out that bowl of healing. Now, the Egyptians were known to be healers. In fact, they had some of the early practices that would become modern-day medicine. And so countries from all around would come to Egypt because they wanted to be healed from the Egyptians. And the matron goddess of healing was Sekhmet. And they would pray to her, and they would, they would use some rudimentary medicine, and then they would come to Sekhmet and say, bring healing upon the people. And yet here you have this plague, and she is utterly unable to heal the plague. In fact, part of her job description is to be able to stop plagues from spreading. And these boils are spreading, and she can do nothing to stop it. Now, here's what's interesting, too. The magicians, it says, got boils on their body and couldn't stand before Moses. The reason they couldn't stand before Moses is because they were defiled. If you know anything about Jewish law, when you have a skin disease, you're considered defiled. You can't go before God. It was no different than the Egyptians. If you had a skin disease, you were considered defiled, and you could not go before the gods or goddesses or before Pharaoh. And so these magicians are now defiled, but these magicians are the same ones as the priests. They're called, in, they're, they're priest magicians. It's not a separate job, which means the very people who are supposed to offer incense to Sekhmet now cannot go before Sekhmet because of the boils. So she can't heal anybody, and the people who are supposed to appease her can't go before her. They're sunk. God has given them a double whammy. There's no way Sekhmet's going to help out. And he's proving his power over the Egyptian gods and goddesses. They will not help you. The boils continue to spread. Now here's Pharaoh. He sees his magicians. They can't help. He sees the land ravaged by boils. None of the Israelites have boils. He sees his own body head to toe. And you would expect in this moment, now feeling the burden and the pain, for him to repent and say, okay, I give up. But then verse 12 says one of the weirdest, scariest things of all. Look back at verse 12. I want to read that one more time. It says, but the Lord, by the way, anytime you see capital L-O-R-D, it's the name Yahweh, the personal name of God. But Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Yahweh hardened his heart. So we're now on the sixth plague. The first five plagues did not mention Yahweh hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Every time before, it was either Pharaoh hardening his own heart or it said his heart was hardened. But in Hebrew, that could be what's called a middle voice, which means he hardened his own heart. The only way to know is context. And because it says he hardened his own heart, you would take it in that middle voice. So the first five plagues are saying that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then there's this flip over in verse 6. 
in four out of the last five plagues will say Yahweh hardened his heart. Yahweh hardened his heart. Yahweh hardened his heart. Yahweh hardened his heart. And let me go ahead and tell you what it means. This scary, sobering thought that there will come a moment if we so reject God that he will say, I accept your rejection of me. That's what's taking place with Pharaoh. Pharaoh has been rejecting him. These miraculous signs are here. No matter how much he searches for truth, he finds that, that Yahweh God has power and he rejects again and again and again and again and he hits the point of no return where now God says, all right, Pharaoh, you want to be in the ring with me, you're going to stay in the ring with me. No, no, don't you try to slip out. You come on back over here. He said, Pharaoh, you started this fight. I'm going to finish the fight. Pharaoh passed the point of no return where Yahweh said, I will accept your rejection of me and move heaven and earth to continue on in this battle. That should scare the fire out of us to know there can come a moment. But we all know it's true. When we breathe our last, if we have rejected God our entire life, there's a moment he will accept our rejection of him. Now, there may be some of you going, no, 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 that, that sounds so wrong. I mean, that, that can't be true. Well, go read your Bible. Go back to Genesis. Go to chapter 6. Look at what it says. It says that the people of God were wicked beyond measure, and he repented of having created humanity. And you know what comes next? A thing called a flood. Wipes out humanity. He says, I accept your, re your rejection of me. Then you go over and, and look at the nation of Israel. You have this with Pharaoh, but then you go over to the nation of Israel, and you have the, the nation of Israel to the north, and they're rejecting God, and God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to them, saying, repent, turn from your evil ways, come back to me. And they refuse. And finally, in the year 722 B.C., God says, I accept your rejection of me. Sends the nation of Assyria to kill the nation of Israel. Then you have the nation of Judah to the south, and he sends prophet after prophet after prophet saying, repent, come back to me, come back to me. And they harden their heart again and again. And finally, in the year 586 B.C., God says, I accept your rejection of me. Sends Babylon to destroy them. Over and over and over, you see the pattern. Well, God will ultimately accept people who reject him if they persist in that rejection. And there's some of you going, no, 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 that's Old Testament. We have Jesus now. Everything changes in the New Testament. Well, don't be so fast to believe that. Go over to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to finish up in the book of Hebrews. Because I want you to understand this is a New Testament Holy Spirit thought. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. I want these verses to sober us up. Verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, <laughs> please listen to that. Please listen to this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts toward his promptings and his voice. Because there can come a moment when he can so see your rejection of the calluses that he accepts your rejection and says, I'll swear by my wrath, you shall not enter my rest. There is a point of no return when you reject and reject and reject and reject, when you harden your hearts. What I'm saying, the further you harden your heart, the more calloused your heart gets, the more desensitized you'll be to the very voice of God. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Listen, I need you to open your eyes and hear that. 
But I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I prayed, should I, should I share this truth with them? Because I'm, I'm just afraid the enemy could get in your mind and try to discourage you or try to defeat you. And he's going to try to tell you a lie. I'm just going to try to subvert that lie right now. Here's the lie that's going to begin to come into your mind, some of you. The lie that's going to come is, Jason, he just said I might be past the point of no return. He, he just said I, I might have rejected God so much there's no hope for me. And you might be right now feeling defeated like I, I'm done. I know I've rejected God over and over again. There must be no hope for me. I'm never going to be saved. And he wants you to walk out of here hopeless. Let me go ahead and tell you this. If you are worried that you might be one of those people, you are not one of those people. Because if you were one of those people, you wouldn't care what I'm saying right now. Your heart would be hardened to it. But if you're feeling fear that maybe I might be one of those people, I want to go, you're not one of those people. There's still hope for you. I, I want you to go back to what the scripture said. Back in, in verse 12 or 13, it says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. If you have today, if you have breath in your lungs, you don't have to harden your heart. You have an opportunity. If you're worried about it, you're not one of those people. Don't be defeated. Don't be discouraged. Don't harden your heart any longer. Or, or maybe, maybe it's not you. Maybe right now you're feeling discouraged because you have a child who's rebellious. You have a parent that you've been praying for for decades and they have not come to faith in Christ. You have a friend, you have a neighbor, somebody that just seems like really hard soil and you're scared to death that they might be rejecting God to the point of no return and you're going, well, I don't even know what to do. I've been praying for my parents for decades and they haven't come to faith. Are they past the point of no return? Now you're scared and you're feeling defeated. Let me go ahead and tell you this. Don't you feel defeated because the power to save the people around you is not you, it's not your prayer, it's Jesus Christ and his power is infinite. God has not told you who is past the point of no return or not. The only reason we know about Pharaoh is because God gave us insight about who was hardening his heart. He started it off and God took it over, but you don't know anybody else, but what you do know is the gospel has power. And therefore, you should share Christ with everybody you can as long as you have opportunity. And you can know that there's a chance they can be saved because of chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I want to finish with this passage. The band's going to come out because we need to respond to this truth. Listen to what 14 through 16 says. It says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me tell you what that means. It means that there's the Son of God, Jesus Christ, took God himself, took on flesh, came to earth, and it says, though he was tempted as we are, he was without sin. Fully obeyed the Father, fully earned the righteousness, and said, I've done this in your place, Jesus. Or Jesus said, I've done this in your place, believer. I give you my righteousness. And he says, give me all your sin, all your shame. I'm going to the cross, and I'm going to pay for it. Then three days later, he rose up from the dead, and it says he went up, passed through the heavens, and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, where he is interceding on our behalf where Jesus himself is interceding on behalf of that loved one that you want to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Interceding on behalf of that neighbor or that friend or that parent or that child. And the father listens to his son Jesus. And all we're doing is joining Jesus in what he's interceding for. You have hope because you have a savior named Jesus who is crying out to the father on their behalf. Don't lose hope, share the gospel. As long as it's called today, you don't know how many more days they're going to have. You don't know when they hit the point of no return. So you keep sharing Christ over and over and over, believing there's power. But you know what that requires? It requires obedience. 
Here's, here's where I want to land today. I think there are many of you believers that are in this room, and God is calling you. He's calling you to be a part of his mission on earth. He's calling you, to, calling you to share Christ with somebody, but you're making all these excuses of why you don't have time to do it. He's calling you to invite people into your home to, to share the gospel with them, and you're going, I'm just too busy. He's calling you to disciple people, and you're going, I, I, I don't have time for it. I just got no margin. He's calling you to be radically generous for a ministry. He's calling you to bring a child into your home through adoption that one day is going to know faith in Jesus Christ because you brought him in your home, and you're going, I just don't have the time for it. I don't have the margin for it. And there are people who are not going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ because you're not obeying. And every day that you resist obedience, it's going to get harder and harder to obey. And you're going to miss all the blessings and the power of the work of God. Church, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and he's calling you to do something, today needs to be the day where you say, forgive me for my disobedience, I'm going to obey you. In a little bit, we're going to have time to open it up. You may need to come down, get on your face and just say, God, forgive me. You, I know what you've been calling me to do, and I've been disobedient. I've been, I've been delaying my obedience. I've been dragging my feet. I've been suffering from paralysis by analysis. I've been just using all these different reasons of why I shouldn't obey, and I'm ready to obey. Maybe some of you, you're going, Jason, it's not that simple. I've got some really hard things in my life right now that I can't, I can't move forward until these things get solved. That's fine. Bring that need down in front of the, the, the prayer team so we can cry out to God on your behalf because God wants to use you. And if there's something blocking it, then God can unblock it so that he can use you to share the gospel. He has that kind of power. So we want to join you crying out to the Father for you on your behalf, interceding on your behalf. You can come let one of us know. We'll have a prayer team spread around the room, pastoral staff and others that can pray for you. But don't miss the opportunity. But here's the most important thing. It's what I've been praying for. I believe there are some of you, and you're here today, and God has been working on your heart. Maybe there are other people who've been sharing Christ with you, and you don't even know why you're here this morning. You just showed up, and you're hearing this, and God is calling you, and everything inside you is going, no, no, I can't do that. I can't go up there and get baptized. What are you, what are you talking about? That'd be crazy. I, I, can't, I can't place my faith in Jesus today. I got, I got more questions. Or I, I got to change some things in my life first. I, I got to, whatever, you, you fill in the blank, whatever's stopping you. And all those are excuses. Don't harden your heart any longer. There are some of you who've been a part of this church and you've been watching these baptisms take place week after week after week and everything inside of you is screaming, I'm supposed to be up there, but you're scared, but you don't know what's next and you're resisting the Lord week after week after week. I'm here to warn you, there will come a moment when God will accept your rejection of him. But today, as long as it's still called today, is not that moment. Don't let the enemy have victory in your life. Today is the day where you say, okay, I turn away from my sins, Jesus. I trust in you. I give you my life. I'm ready to take this step of faith. And we will counsel with you. We will, we will make sure you're ready. We got a t-shirt you can change into. We got shorts you can put on. We will baptize you. We made sure the water's warm this week so that you can go in there and be baptized. But it's just you saying, okay, I'm done. I'm done fighting the Lord. I'm ready. I'm not going to harden my heart any longer. You may need to respond today. I'm going to give you that chance. So I'm going to invite you all to stand up if you don't mind. I'm going to invite the prayer team to spread around the room. And listen, if you see somebody with a black lanyard, you'll see they have their name. That's the prayer team. You can go to them to pray. If you see some of the staff down here that have the little name tag, you can come pray with them. They're standing in the front. 
If you have a need for prayer, if you want to come bow down on the ground and just say, Lord, forgive me. I, I know you've been calling me to do something and I have not been faithful. Do so. If you're saying today, I'm ready. I'm ready. I need to take the step of faith. I'm tired of dragging my feet. I've been disobedient. Today's my day where I confess my faith in Jesus Christ. Then you come. You say, today's the day. No more waiting. We're going to open it up to you. If all you need to do is worship the Lord in song, you do so. We'll take the Lord's Supper in a moment. But I think there are many of you who need to respond. I want to encourage you. Don't harden your heart. If you're hearing his voice today, don't harden your heart. Respond however he tells you.